Good morning. I used to love Saturday mornings when I was growing up because I love Saturday morning cartoons. Winnie the Pooh, Garfield and Friends, Pinky and the Brain, you know, all the good stuff. Even as adults, sometimes it's fun to go back and revisit those. Uh, my favorite was Bugs Bunny and pretty much the whole Merry Melodies universe. Um, <laughs> the physical humor, the comedic timing, uh, it was just great television. One thing you'll notice from the Bugs Bunny universe is that the anvil plays a pretty prominent role. It shows up pretty often. In fact, I took a little bit of time this week uh, to develop the seven rules for cartoon anvils. You know, they don't operate under the regular universal laws. For example, rule number one, an anvil cannot kill you. All it can do is bruise you really bad. Two, if you and an anvil start falling at the same time, you will fall faster than the anvil and the anvil will land on top of you. Three, if you and an anvil, uh, if you know that an anvil is falling from a great height and you know that it's going to fall on you, your feet will not have enough traction to move out of the way. You'll just run in circles and then the anvil will land on top of you. Number four, anvils are either only slightly heavy or the heaviest thing in the world, depending on who is interacting with it. Number five, an anvil is easily concealed in something that appears soft and cuddly, such as a feather pillow. Number six, if you manage to narrowly escape being hit by an anvil, you will immediately be maimed by something even bigger bigger and heavier, such as a train. And finally, number seven, if Wiley Coyote comes up with a plan to hurt the roadrunner with an anvil, he himself will get hurt by that anvil. I bring up the anvil... um, in this, uh, because in this passage we'll be studying this morning, uh, in Matthew five seventeen through 20, Jesus drops a theological anvil on his would-be followers. As we're going to see here in a minute, Jesus drops a demand for radical righteousness. He tells them that unless they're perfect, then they're not worthy of heaven. And he doesn't bother to follow that up with, uh, with instructions on how to do it. It's a heavy, genuine, Acme brand anvil. And we're going, to let us, we're going to let it hit us in the head this morning. So if you guys would, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 17 through 20 together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And if you would, please stand up in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, said this, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. Let me pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. God, we invite your presence among us. You say in your word, uh, whenever three or more are gathered in your name, that you're there. And God, we hold on to that truth, and we thank you for that, uh, because we need your presence among us. Uh, Holy Spirit, teach us um, your word this morning. Protect us from error. Lead us past conviction and into transformation. And God, we're dependent on you. All these things in your name, amen. What this passage tells us is that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, but he continues the, uh, he confirms the continued authority of the law and he demands radical obedience. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never go to heaven. This is the anvil Jesus hits us in the head with. We're going to spend this morning finding out just how heavy it is. 
The first point Jesus makes in this passage is that he fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. This point comes directly from verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so let's begin by defining a couple terms here that will be important. What's meant by the law and the prophets? Well, the law re, uh, refers to the rules and regulations in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are credited to Moses as author. Uh, they're referred to together as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And they contain a list of things to do and not to do, ranging from the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods besides me, you shall not, you shall not steal, etc., to the more popular laws, be fruitful and multiply. Seven billion people on earth and growing can attest to the fact that we, this is a law that we can get on board with. And then there's the more strange laws, such as what we find in Leviticus 17.10, which says, don't eat the blood of animals or I'll set my face against you and you'll be cut off. My sister lives in Ireland, and I visited her there a couple times. And um, one morning, she offered me a traditional Irish breakfast that, continue, uh, that, uh, that had uh, blood sausage. And she tried to offer me some of this blood sausage. And I pointed to this verse, Leviticus 17.10, and I said, Get your vile Irish abomination away from me. <laughs> I didn't really say that. I, I tried the blood sausage. I just realized that day that, that blood sausage just isn't for me. But anyway, all these things that I just mentioned, this is what's meant by the law. The prophets refer to everything else in the Old Testament, including the major prophets, the minor prophets, the wisdom literature, and the historical books, pretty much everything from Joshua to Malachi. These were people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write and speak the truth. This included documenting the details of Israel's history, speaking oracles of judgment against the nations, making accurate predictions about things in the future that would happen, and telling people in authority the truth that they needed to hear. They also doc documented the bizarre methods that they had to use in order to get their message across, and some of them were pretty strange. Ezekiel seemed to have gotten the short end of the stick on this one. At one point, God had him lay on his left side for 390 days straight. And when those days were over, God says, now turn over and lay on your right side for 40 days straight. Once God had him cut off all of his hair, pretend to attack it with a sword around different places uh, around the city. He also had to eat bread that was cooked over animal droppings during that 390-day uh, period. Uh, the prophets were known for having a very creative delivery to their messages. Finally, most of the prophets expected a central figure of authority uh, to come and rule with justice and righteousness for all eternity, the Messiah. So all of this is what's meant by the prophets. And when the terms law and prophets are used together, it's referring to the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says in verse 17 that he came to fulfill them. But what does it mean to fulfill the Old Testament? In one sense, fulfill means to fill up like you would fill up an empty bottle with water. In other words, when the prophets made a prediction, a prophecy, that prophecy would remain empty until the event that it was pointing to filled it up and fulfilled the prophecy. So Jesus' mission was to, fill, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy with the events in his life, death, and resurrection to take all the empty bottles that the prophets made and fill them up. We see the theme of prophecy fulfillment already in the book of Matthew before this. In Matthew 1, through 23, Jesus is born to marry a virgin in order to fulfill what is said in Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. In Matthew 2, 5 through 6, Jesus is born in Bethlehem to fulfill Micah 5, 2, which says, And you, O Bethlehem, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In Matthew 2, 15, Jesus, uh, Jesus' family flees to Egypt and comes back to fulfill Hosea 11, 1, which speaks of God calling his son out of Egypt. And they return to Nazareth in, 
in uh, Matthew 2.23 to, to, to fulfill the Old Testament expectations that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, a branch. And leading up to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4.14, it says that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee to fulfill what is said in Isaiah 9.1-2, through 2, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in deep shadows, light has dawned. Jesus is the one who fills up Old Testament prophecy. He's the key that unlocks their meaning. The implication of this fulfillment theme is that Jesus has the authority to interpret the meaning of the Old Testament prophecies. That's why we see him exert this authority in the days following his death and resurrection. We see this, uh, for example, in Luke chapter 24. That's where Jesus meets two followers on the road to Emmaus. And sometime during this encounter with them, Jesus tells them this. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. That's Luke 24, 25 through 27. Jesus fulfills the prophets. He also fulfills the law. In one sense, Jesus fulfills uh, the law in that each aspect of the law points to him. For example, the sacrificial system ultimately uh, points to the uh, sacrifice of Jesus in our place. We see this especially in Hebrews 10, which talks about when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the law points to Jesus, but in another sense, Jesus fulfills the demands of the law. Another big part of my Saturday morning cartoons along, uh, Saturday morning routine along with uh, cartoons uh, was Saturday morning chores. My, uh, my mom always gave me a, a list of chores to do, and, and she was really strict about this. This was every Saturday, and I could not go out and hang out with, with my friends until all of my chores were done. So I'd wake up, watch my Saturday morning cartoons, and then around 11 o'clock, uh, I'd get started on my chores. Of course, none of the other neighborhood kids had chores, so I was outside raking and mowing and sweating outside. I could hear all the neighborhood kids, you know, next door, splashing in the pool and having fun. Um, my mom always wrote all of my chores in a list, and she would leave them on the dining room table. And whenever I finished a job, I'd go to that list, and I'd put a big black line through the job that I had just finished. And when I finally completed the last one, I'd say, Mom, I'm finished. I'm out of here. And every once in a while, she'd say, hold up, buddy. I'm going to check things out here first. And she'd take the list, and she'd walk around the house, and she'd walk around the yard. And she wanted to make sure that I had fulfilled my duties. She wanted to make sure that I hadn't skimped out on anything. And if everything was done to her satisfaction, then I was free to go. One way to look at the law is that it was a long list of chores to do. A bunch of do's and don'ts. According to rabbinic literature, there are 613 commandments in the law. I don't know if that's the exact number, but 613 is generally the number that's given. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. My mission is to satisfy the demands of the law. In other words, Jesus could sit down and write down all 613 commands in a list and mark them all out with a black line because he had fulfilled the demands of every single one. Isaiah 53, 9 says he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. And Hebrews 4, 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Even the law itself looked forward to a lamb without blemish when the rules of the Passover were given in Exodus 12. Jesus fulfills the law. He satisfies the demands. He fulfills the prophets. The implications being that he has authority to interpret the meaning of the prophecies, and he has the authority to interpret the intent of the law, including how it's practiced. And it's important that we understand this before going any further, because it's the key to understanding everything that we're going to be talking about this morning. 
Jesus has the authority to interpret the intent of the law, including how it's practiced. That's why we in this church and churches all around the world are not still observing uh, the letter of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. And yet obedience and holiness is still a big issue. So Jesus' mission, what he came to earth to do, was to fulfill the expectations and intentions of the whole Bible. Now, Jesus says he fulfills the law, but that does not mean that he sets it aside. The second thing Jesus does in this passage is he confirms the continued authority of the law. Jesus confirms the continued authority of the law. So let's look back at the passage beginning in verse 17 again. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is where the anvil starts getting a little bit heavier. Jesus begins by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. And most translations prefer the term abolish here. And it's an uncommon term. We don't use it very much today. Most people have heard it used in relationship to the abolition of slavery in the United States. Because slavery had a firm grasp on the American South. But Lincoln, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the Civil War served to bring the institution of slavery to an end. Thank God, right? But Jesus did not come to do this to the law. He said, I have not come to abolish the law. That's not my mission. The basic meaning of the word used for abolish here is to loosen. Like you would loosen a knot or to untie or even to free. And based on the context and the compound of the word used here, it brings out the meaning to render inoperative, to invalidate, or to set aside. So Jesus said, I have not come to set aside the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he says the Old Testament is still relevant and authoritative for our lives. We are responsible for knowing and obeying the intent of the law. And in case people weren't paying attention or were a little confused about what he meant here, he clarifies himself in verse 18. He starts by saying, amen. Or for truly I say to you, this is his way of getting their attention uh, to the importance of what he was about to say. His audience was outside in the hill country. Uh, So this was his way of saying, you know, if you're playing with the grass or if you're building sandcastles with the dust, or if you're doodling in your bulletins, or if you're thinking about that report you have to turn in at work tomorrow, stop and listen because this is important. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He told them how long the law would have authority. He used two until phrases to spell it out for them. He said, until heaven and earth pass away and, in, and until all is accomplished, the law is here to stay. The first until phrase refers to the presence of heaven and earth. And I think that we can use our senses to figure out um, this one. We can stomp our feet on the ground and confirm the presence of earth. And we can go outside and we can look up to confirm the heavens. On Friday, we had a partial solar eclipse. You weren't able to see it because of the Indiana permacloud. But it was there. It happened. The moon and the sun are still operating the way that they're supposed to. The heavens and the earth are still intact. And so, based on this first until phrase, the law is still um, sticking around. The second until phrase confirms the continued authority of the law as well. It says the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. This is referring back to the expectations of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus was saying the law will not pass away until all that the prophets said must happen, has happened, and it hasn't. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fulfilled a lot of prophecies, but not all of them. 
There's still a few empty bottles, if you will, waiting to be filled. Jesus still has to come back. The Old Testament prophets look forward to the day of the Lord, that day in end times when Jesus returns, establishes his reign, settles accounts forever, and that hasn't happened yet. And so based on these two phrases, Jesus is saying the law has continued authority for this current time and place in history. It has authority for us Christians now. And he tells us what parts are authoritative. All of it. In verse 18, he says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Iota is the letter I in the Greek alphabet. It's the transcription of the letter Yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks a lot like a comma in the English script. It's, uh, it's the letter Y. And since it was so small, it was really easy for a scribe to miss when they were making a handwritten copy of the scriptures. The dot is the very small pen stroke that differentiates one letter from another. Uh, the, the, the English uh, example for that would be the cross on a T or the dot at the top of an I or the curl at the bottom of the letter J. And what he's saying here is that the details of the law have authority. It means that we're responsible to know them in the details and obey them with the right intentions in the details, not just the broad brushstrokes. Some people will point to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, where Jesus says that the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the law and the prophets. And they'll say, aha, that's all God is expecting from us. He just wants us to love, man. He just wants us to love. Or they'll uh, look to Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus says, so in everything do to others, as you, uh, uh, others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And they say, God just wants us to live by the golden rule. That's it. That's all he expects from us. Just be nice. Just be good to people. Treat them the way you would want them to treat you. And yes, the law and the prophets depended on loving God and loving others as the intention and the attitude behind obeying what is written. Yes, treating others as you'd like to be treated is a good summary of the law and prophets. But just because someone tells you a one-sentence summary of a book doesn't mean you know the book. You could sum up the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy by saying this. Some little short guy throws a ring into a fire. It's a perfectly good summary, but that doesn't mean you know the story, right? That's what the golden rule is. It's just a summary. If we think that Jesus in this passage is simply wanting us to apply the broad brushstrokes of the law, then all we do is deduce uh, obedience into some abstract sentimentality that has no real substance. It's Oprah Winfrey theology. If we do this, then we approach the Bible as simply options to consider instead of what it is. Details on the very heart of God. Jesus would say, yes, love God passionately. Yes, love others sacrificially. But show your love in these specific ways. Obey in these specific ways. I poured my heart out into these pages and I don't want you to miss a single word. The law continues in authority for us for this time in history and in the details. And this is important to catch. Our obedience to them will affect our honor in heaven. We see this in verse nine, uh, 19. Let's read this one more time. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, whoever relaxes, that's the same word as abolish we looked at uh, before. Whoever relaxes or sets aside or invalidates even the least important commandment will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. So if I come across a commandment in the Bible that seems obscure or weird or stupid or just downright strange... And because of that, begin treating it like it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to go to heaven. 
But it does mean that my experience there is going to be negatively affected. I will be called least in heaven. I will be considered small. I will be considered unimportant. If I'm just making my way through the Christian life, waiting for my free ride to heaven, obeying the rules I like, ignoring the ones I don't like, then heaven is not going to be nearly as good for me as it could be. The anvil seems to be getting a little bit heavier at this point, doesn't it? When Jerry and I were still living in North Carolina, we would travel up here to Indiana um, for Christmas. And one year we decided to, uh, to surprise her, her family, come up without letting them know. And since they didn't know, they, they, they shipped all of our presents uh, down to North Carolina. And so the day before we left to come up to Indiana, our presents arrived. So we packed them all in a box and then we drove them all the way back up here to Indiana. And as we were celebrating Christmas around the Christmas tree, uh, I got the present from, uh, from Sherry's parents. And I, and I knew before even opening exactly what it was, uh, it was, it was clothes. Because clothes always come in those kind of like the flimsy boxes from the department stores. And so, like, you can tell exactly what they are. So, you know, I wasn't too excited, you know. My philosophy for, for Christmas and for presents in general is to get something that you want and not necessities, right? And so, for me, clothing is just like a necessity. So, you know, I wasn't too excited about it. So I opened it up and took the wrapping paper off and opened up the box. And there was the tissue paper covering up the shirt. And it was a, it was a nice shirt, actually. I was surprised. It was a really cool shirt. I liked it a lot. And I was very thankful and appreciative. And so I went through the, through the routine of, you know, balling up the, the wrapping paper and throwing away the box. And I started uh, the tissue paper. I started, you know, crumpling that up. I was about to throw it away. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute here. This thing's a little bit heavier than it ought to be. And so I opened up this clump of tissue paper. Inside of it was a brand new iPod. And I had almost thrown it away because I thought that it was worthless paper. And guys, it's the same thing with these weird, strange laws in the Bible. Sometimes we come across it and it's boring and we're like, ah, just get through this. And we just want to throw it away. But there's a treasure inside each law. Everything in the law, everything in the prophets somehow points to Jesus. There's treasure in it. So don't throw it out. In addition to that, there's consequences. Your honor will be degraded in heaven based on considering the least of these commands as unimportant. On the other hand, if I acknowledge the authority of the law in my life to the point that I know it, obey it, and teach it, I will be rewarded. Verse 19 says, I will be called great in heaven. And so both of these outcomes are possible for each person in this room. For each believer, Jesus confirms the continued authority of the law and the prophets over my life. Jesus is saying that the goal of the law and the prophets was to point to him. Now that he's come, their primary goal is complete, but they're not finished. They're not done. They're not over. They're still important in that Jesus exercises authority over how we are to interpret and obey the law in light of him and in light of what he's done. So let's look at the last thing Jesus said in this passage in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demands radical obedience. That's the last thing that he says in this passage before moving on to the next topic in this sermon. Jesus demands radical obedience. He said, unless you're more righteous uh, than the Pharisees, you will never go to heaven. And the Pharisees were famous in Jesus' day for being righteous. They were very successful at behaving themselves. And I suppose some people in the crowd probably idolized their ability to obey. And the Pharisees considered themselves the separate ones. That's what their name comes from. And they held the law in highest regard. They sought to apply even the most rigorous interpretation of it. And beyond that, they held their oral tradition even higher regard, which more often than not held them to an even higher standard standard of morality than even the law. And so when it comes to righteousness, the Pharisees were the real deal. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he was pretty adamant about that point. The phrase, you will never enter heaven, contains a double negative. 
It reads like this. You will not not enter. And so in Greek, this serves to intensify the no. The way this comes across is, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus clarifies this uh, standard for righteousness in Matthew 5, 48, where he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Additionally, there are only two destinations for people when they die, heaven or hell. So if I'm unworthy of heaven because I'm not as perfect as God, then hell is where I'm going. The most rigorous interpretation of verse 20 is be perfect or be condemned. Therein lies the anvil. Jesus moves on to explain his interpretation of the law and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which doesn't relax the law, but makes it even harder to follow. Jesus drops on us the heavy demand for perfect righteousness. He doesn't offer, he doesn't uh, follow that up um, and offer a solution. He doesn't follow up with an explanation uh, as to how this righteousness can be gained or how it can be developed. It would seem that everyone is disqualified from heaven. It must have left at least a few people in the audience wondering who then can be saved. This is no longer a cartoon anvil. This is something that's big and scary and real. And maybe we should pause for a moment and really let the implication set in. Be perfect or be condemned. Now that we've let the whole weight of the anvil hit us, it's time to crawl out of the body-shaped hole in the ground scrape our flattened body off the bottom of the anvil, (laughs) blow into our thumbs and inflate our flattened bodies, take an aspirin to keep the stars from circling around our heads. Let's talk about the gospel, yeah? Jesus was speaking to an audience of first century Galileans, and they were okay with anvils being dropped on them without any explanation. We're a Western audience. If someone drops an anvil on us, then someone's got some explaining to do. We want reasons. We want answers. And so we're going to look to the rest of the biblical witness for these answers. The phrase, a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees in verse 20, is both the hardest part of the anvil and also an allusion to the gospel. It's the faintest of hints. It's just a tiny wink in the direction of someone whose heart might understand. Because the Pharisees' righteousness was external. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They had underhanded ways of setting aside the commands of God to make room for their own traditions, rules taught by men. They diluted and domesticated the radical demands of holiness into external obedience, easy moralisms, ceremonial cleanliness, and legality. But the true intention of the law was in the law and the prophets all along. It wasn't about external observance, but about the heart, the intention, and the attitude. I want you guys to listen for a moment the refrain among the Old Testament witness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Circumcise your heart and not your flesh. Rend your hearts and not your garments. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
Did you hear it? The law and the prophets were always about the intentions and the attitudes of the heart. It was always about heart change. And the radical demands for righteousness always meant to point us to our need for a savior. Enter Jesus and the gospel. The good news that nobody can gain salvation by following the law, but Jesus saves. He offers salvation or righteousness gained through faith in Jesus. I want to read a passage to you guys from the Bible that explains this well. This is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who looks, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus bought us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in our place. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody lives up to Jesus' demand for radical obedience. In Matthew 5.20, nobody. We're all unworthy of heaven. We're all destined for condemnation. But Romans 3.21 says, A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. They are made righteous by his grace through the price paid by Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law. He satisfied its demands. Yet he received our consequences for breaking the law in our place. All of God's wrath and anger stored up for our unrighteousness was poured on Jesus as he died on the cross. We should have gotten hurt, but Jesus got hurt so that his perfect righteousness could be given to us if we would simply believe. Salvation is righteousness gained through faith in Jesus. And so if you've never trusted Jesus if you've been trusting in your own goodness to save you, if you've never considered that your own imperfection has condemned you, then I would beg you to trust Jesus today. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. It's just you talking with God, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging that you understand that your imperfection has condemned you, to recognize your need for a savior and that only Jesus could be that savior, to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, God who came to earth to die in your place on the cross, and then to make a commitment to follow Jesus as the Lord and leader of your life, to devote yourself to pursue him and follow him wherever he leads you. So if you've never trusted Jesus, I'd ask that you do that today. You can do it sitting where you are right now or uh, after the service, I'll be here on the stage and you can come and talk with me. Let's talk about sanctification. After salvation comes sanctification and it lasts for the rest of your life here on earth. It's where you spend the rest of your life pursuing Jesus in his heart as the biggest prize in your life. Sanctification is righteousness developed through participation with the Holy Spirit. We read about this in uh, Philippians 2, 12 uh, through 16. So I'll read that. There's lots of other passages that we could look at. But we'll stick with Philippians 2, 12 through 16. That says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast 
to the word of life. Paul says that it's God, it's the Holy Spirit that works in us and through us to transform our wills and our works to develop our righteousness that pleases God. He does most of the work, but he wants us to do it with him. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification is not a spectator sport. He wants us to develop our righteousness through participation with the Holy Spirit. He said, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Be blameless and innocent. By your holiness, shine like stars in the midst of a crooked world. And hold fast to the word of life, the Bible. I think Matthew 5, 18 through 19, where Jesus confirms the continued authority of the law over lives, where Jesus says that our experience in heaven will be affected based on, uh, on how we treat uh, the commandments. I think these verses, 18 and 19, are best applied to the period of sanctification in our life. God wants to work through our reverence for the whole scripture in our lives to sanctify our lives. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Our primary purpose of the law and prophets is to serve us the church, to help us to know Jesus better and to instruct us to live in accordance with the gospel. Sanctification is our righteousness developed through participation with the Holy Spirit. He does most of the work, but he wants us to do it. He wants to do it with us. He wants us to draw ever near to his heart through specific acts of sacrificial obedience according to his word. Not to gain salvation, but because we love him as our greatest prize, because we acknowledge his lordship, his kingship over our life, because we desire to be holy, simply because he is holy. And that's all. And so how are we doing in this area this morning? How many of you guys, like me, have made a compromise for sin? How many of us are making excuses for disobedience? How many of us have rationalized why our sin is okay? We've all come in here with various kinds of junk in our life, each of which grieves the Holy Spirit that lives in us, the pride of life, judgment of others, mean-heartedness towards our kids and others, addiction to alcohol, uh, abuse of drugs, dishonesty at work, sexual sin, and on and on. In what ways are we blocking God's desire to sanctify us? I pray that we would be brought back to a point of decision today and say no more. I'm not going to compromise anymore. I renounce sin. I accept forgiveness. I'm pursuing Jesus with all my heart and soul. He's our greatest prize. Finally, our righteousness will never be fully complete and perfected until we're glorified. Glorification is when our righteousness is realized through encounter with God. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we work out our, our salvation here on earth, as we walk step in step with the Spirit, we're going to make mistakes because we're not perfect. Sanctification is often two steps forward and one step back. But with God, there's infinite grace and forgiveness. And our Christian hope is that when Christ returns and we see him face to face, we will be, perfect, we will be perfected in the twinkling of an eye. We'll see the perfect holiness in the face of Christ. And something in our heart will say, ha ha, I finally get it. We will be perfect in that moment and we will never look back. 
This hope is so sure that it changes everything about how we live right now. John says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. That's the center of righteousness. Every moral code, every ceremonial practice, every commandment, every commission in the Bible hinges on this. Be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. In closing, Satan hates the holiness of the church and will do anything in his power to knock us off the center of gospel-centered living. And the center is the gospel. It's pursuing the heart of Jesus because I love Jesus and I recognize his lordship over my life. My eyes are on him and on him alone. I'm not looking at other people. I'm not seeing how I measure up. It's on God alone. Satan tries to knock us off that center in any direction towards four tipping points that pervert the intention and heart behind obedience. And we can think of these four tipping points being at the four corners of a square with the gospel in the center. And the first uh, tipping point is legalism. This is where I'm trying to gain salvation through my own good works. Salvation for me looks like a ladder. It's our own personal tower of Babel. Every time I obey, I go up one rung closer to God. If I screw up once, I fall all the way back down to the bottom and I have to start all over again. I either idolize or I'm jealous of the people who are above me on the ladder and I feel superior and judgmental towards those people who are below me on the ladder. My eyes are on everyone else and on myself trying to figure out how I measure up, trying to figure out if everyone else is living by my moral code. If this is you, this is what Jesus says. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter heaven. You can't gain salvation. Turn to the gospel and gain righteousness through faith in Jesus. On the opposite side of the legalism continuum uh, continuum lies laxity, the second uh, tipping point. Laxity, or you could use the word complacency. Laxity is where I exchange God's radical call for obedience for abstract sentimentality. God just wants me to love people. I just follow the golden rule. That's all that God expects from me. I don't get too caught up with all that Bible knowledge. With laxity, we reduce our Christian life almost exclusively to church attendance. We just want enough of Jesus to feel okay about ourselves. We outsource the work of evangelism and witnessing to the leaders of the church, thinking that's their job, that's not mine. Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If this is you, then you need to know that salvation is free. But sanctification could cost everything. Jesus, the apostles, and the church father would have never conceived a Christianity that does not interfere with our lives. Turn back toward living in line with the gospel Pursue the heart of Christ and his word and let that lead you to specific acts of righteousness. And the final two tipping points are favor and judgment. Favor is where I obey God in order to gain his favor. If I obey, if I obey God, then God somehow becomes indebted to me. God owes me. Nice things should come my way. He should protect me from bad things happening. If this is you, turn back to the gospel. The reward for obeying God is getting to know Jesus and being closer to his heart. Nothing could be better than that. Not even a good life. And the fourth tipping point is judgment. This is where you try to obey God in order to deserve his love. And when you fail, Satan twists God's word within you. He rubs your face in your sin. and makes you feel like you're the scum of the earth. Your heart cries out, I'm so awful. I don't deserve love. I could never begin to pursue Jesus, and so I'm not even going to try. You live a life of defeat. If this is you, turn back to the gospel. 
When God gives you salvation, he doesn't just forgive you. He calls you righteous. That's who you are right now if you believe in Jesus as Savior. It's not something that you earn if you're good enough for long enough. It's true of you right now. Jesus calls you a saint. A saint that sometimes sin, yeah, but a saint nonetheless. And you have the freedom to live out of that. And beyond that, you are loved. Romans 8 asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel, a love so great. The law is the anvil that can bruise our heart. And it should bruise our heart from time to time. Because it turns us back to Christ. But the, because of the gospel, the law can't kill us. You guys, remember the first law of the anvil? The law can bruise you, but it can't kill you if you are in Christ. Also reminds me of the seventh rule. Wiley Coyote. Any plan that he uses that includes the anvil, he'll end up getting hurt by that anvil. Same is true of Satan. Any plan that Satan uses to use the law to kill us, <laughs> it'll end up killing him. Because we're more than conquerors. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He confirms the continued authority of the law. And he demands radical obedience. As a church, let's continue to pursue this kind of obedience in an ever-increasing manner. Not to gain salvation. Not to gain favor with God. Not to look around and see how everyone else is doing but to draw ever closer to the heart of Christ, to be holy as he is holy, to shine bright as stars in the world, to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. I'll close this in prayer and and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for mornings like this, times to get together, um, to worship you together, uh, to learn about your word. Uh, God, I pray that... um, that anything, if anything struck home here, uh, that your Holy Spirit would go out, convict us, and move us towards change. Um, God, anything that, that Satan would do to twist um, his word, uh, your word this morning, uh, that you would also uh, protect us from that. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you. All these things in your name. Amen.